Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, we're going to be doing some counter-programming. In a few minutes, you'll hear the first half of a conversation Peter Kadzis and I had with Elizabeth Cohen. She's the Howard Mumford Jones Professor of American Studies at Harvard University and the author, most recently, of Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. It is an incredibly in-depth and readable look at the quest for so-called urban renewal through the lens of the life and career of a man who at one point headed up the Boston Redevelopment Authority, known today as the Boston Planning and Development Agency. In that role, Ed Logue played a huge part in creating the Boston that we know today. In some circles, his name has now become a bit of a dirty word. Cohen's goal, among other things, is showing that sizing up Logue's career and the principles he was dedicated to is trickier than we might think. For the record, Cohen's book was just awarded the Bancroft Prize, which Columbia University gives annually to the top works on American history and diplomacy. It is really, really good. And if you don't read it, you're missing out. But first, everyday life has changed immeasurably since the last episode of The Scrum came out. There's no way to take stock of it all here. But Peter and I did have a socially distant conversation as the first week of the rest of our lives draws to a close about how some of the biggest names in Massachusetts politics are acquitting themselves right now. This call is now being recorded. All right, we are recording. Okay. So, given everything that I just said, uh, Peter, what's your take on who is acquitting themselves with distinction in Massachusetts politics and or national politics, and who is maybe not rising to the occasion the way they could? If you want to do the second, you could just emphasize the positive. Okay. Well, Governor Charlie Baker has, uh, I think, finally found his footing. Uh, he's himself uh, a no-nonsense, cut-and-dry uh, town manager type. Um, every day he manages to uh, push the response a little bit further down the line. You know, the most recent example, uh, well, the two big examples are calling the state of emergency and now activating the National Guard. Um, those are very dramatic steps that signal to the public um, that this is a serious time. And they also have very practical consequences. The, um, the state of emergency gives uh, Massachusetts all sorts of powers, in, including uh, monitoring all inventories of health care products and allocating them as needed. Um, there's one concrete example that most people might not realize. Bringing the National Guard out is it, it remains to be seen exactly what they'll be doing, but they're going to be shuttling equipment back and forth. Uh, to me, too, while the governor has said there's no plans to order a shelter in place, um, the fact that the guards being brought out suggests to me that some further restrictions might be coming. But I, I have to say that's just a guess. Um, Boston Mayor Walsh is being very true to form. He's practicing his form of the politics of therapy, very soulful, uh, 
referencing his uh, experience uh, in recovery from alcohol. Um, and I think that's a good, you know, it's very natural to him. Um, Can you, sorry to interrupt, for listeners who may have missed it, and for me, because I confess, I managed to totally miss it. What did the mayor have to say when he brought up the example of his own recovery as potentially useful or informative in this current situation? Oh, he says it very casually. There's no melodrama about it. He says, um, you know, as I learned in recovery, we have to take crises one day at a time. One day at a time being the sort of guiding principle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And by the way, I'm finding, you know, as I settle into this new way of living and new way of doing business, that um, I have to take it one day at a time. So I think the mayor's advice has been good. Boston has also taken some very dramatic steps. Um, maybe the most important is setting up special quarantine tents um, near the so-called methadone mile to house homeless people um, who may be diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. That's important because, A, the homeless population is very vulnerable, but it also goes beyond compassion. If the virus were to sweep through Boston's homeless and Boston's addicts who flock to the city from all over the state because there's a higher level of service here, um, that endangers the health care responders. And the health care responders uh, will already be in danger from just dealing with the more routine aspects of this pandemic. Um, I think nationally we've seen a star emerge in New York Governor Cuomo. Um, he has a very, I would say, swashbuckling style. Um, he's not afraid to speculate. And when I say speculate, he doesn't worry about things, uh, hypotheticals. He's very specific. For example, on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, he said that the best medical advice he has been given places the peak of the pandemic in 45 days. Now, that would be April 30th. Now, he's talking about New York State, but that's roughly applicable to Boston. That's a useful piece of information. Um, his style is such so that if he's making point A and an aide hands him a piece of paper with new information, he says, you know, that's outdated. Here's the newest information. Um, he is a study in transparency. Um, even though President Trump has attacked him uh, on Twitter repeatedly, he publicly embraces the president, says he needs New York, needs the federal government support, I think the phrase he used was, I extend my hand in cooperation. He is being above it all. Now, that's in marked contrast to President Trump, who um, I have to say certainly gives the appearance of not knowing what he's doing, um, 
I, however, think he does know what he's doing, um, maybe not systematically, but instinctually. I mean, President Trump is effectively privatizing the pandemic. And here's what I mean by that. When Charlie Baker sought to follow Trump's advice to have states go out and find their own respirators, he ran into a brick wall that the federal government was also buying respirators, and they were able to outbid the state of Massachusetts. So who wins here? That means higher profits for the respiratory makers. And by the way, I'm not accusing the manufacturers of the respirators of doing anything wrong. But um, Trump has a very, very curious way about dealing with this situation. Let me mention one other area in which it seems he knows exactly what he's doing. Whatever you think of the president, I don't think there's any question he has a genius for branding. And in trying to rebrand this as the Chinese virus, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing there. I happen to think that it's an incredibly cynical move aimed at avoiding blame for the many things that have gone wrong in the U.S. and could still go wrong. I also was talking with one of my closest old friends the other day who happens to be Korean-American who says he's already experienced what he interprets as the effect of uh, people viewing this as a Asian virus. And, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to listen and not want to scream every time the president reinforces that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's advantageous to him politically, perhaps, if we all think of it as something that came from China and for which he bears no responsibility, even if that's a narrative that I, I think doesn't hold up when you look at it critically. No, I mean, Henry Adams, an old Boston Brahmin, and writing his autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams, wrote of the 1840s that politics was little more than the systematic organization of hatreds. Now, Donald Trump, I doubt, is familiar with that, but th those are the politics he practices. Let me place a however here, in no way excusing Trump for what he's doing, for this sort of racial baiting. Um, there is no doubt that China bears the ultimate responsibility for this. Um, it's a bit ironic that if the information coming out of um, China is correct, they, they seem to have gotten a very firm handle on it. But it was their dodging their poor early response that let this get out of hand. Yeah, and their refusal to allow people in China, Chinese people who were saying, hey, please pay attention to this. This is dangerous. We need to stop it. And then the Chinese government shut them down, uh, which looks incredibly, incredibly unwise in retrospect. There is a very good piece in The Atlantic uh, from a, a Brookings Institute scholar uh, about China's ultimate responsibility for this. Let me close on a slightly more upbeat note, if, if you're game for this. You and I were on the radio, it seems like a long time ago, I think it was just a week ago as of this recording, talking about similar stuff, how Baker was doing, how Walsh was doing. And I said something about how Baker didn't seem to want to take on the rhetorical challenge that this represents 
those are my words exactly, but I, I just want to give the governor credit. I was watching one of his press briefings. I can't remember which one they've all blurred together, but it closed with a, a really dumb question from some reporter who was there. I was watching remotely who said something like, Governor, how are you feeling? And the governor took this inane question from a member of the media and transitioned into a very eloquent and thoughtful set of comments about how, you know, it was just a few days ago he'd done that thing he does when he gets his head shaved for charity. And, uh, you know, at the time of the press conference, the idea of doing anything like that seemed completely uh, inappropriate and dangerous. And the governor went on to say, and I'm not being as eloquent as he was, it's a reminder of how fast things are changing. And we all need to bear in mind that this is going to be a marathon rather than a sprint. And I just want to note, that's exactly the kind of thing that one week ago I was saying the governor was not doing, but now he's doing it. And I think it's good for the state that he is. It is. I mean, Charlie Baker's whole style is slow and steady. And he's picking up steam, has picked up steam. And, um, you know, I, I don't see how the governor or the mayor of Boston could be doing a better job. I don't like it. You know, I'm hypercritical of everyone. Peter, thanks for talking with me about this, and take care of yourself. You too, Adam. Bye-bye. All right, on to the first half of our conversation with Harvard's Elizabeth Cohen about her new book, Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. Let me start off by asking you the obvious question, which I'm sure you've answered a million times. What made you want to write a biography of Ed Logue? Well, I didn't start there. I started with a broader interest in writing a book about post-war cities and how they came to look the way they do. Um, my previous work had focused on the social experiences of ordinary people, you know, immigrants, um, African-Americans who had been living in the South and came North for a better life, um, consumers, homeowners. Uh, I was really a social historian. And I had set my work in cities and in metropolitan areas, but the problematic, the question I was asking wasn't about cities. It, that was the setting. So I was really making a, a big shift here. I was saying, okay, I really want to understand how post-war cities came to be and also how they responded to this massive suburbanization, which I had already written about in my previous book, Consumer's Republic. So I, that was my starting point. And then I, I wasn't sure how to go about it, but it did seem to me that social history wasn't really the right direction. Um, I guess I cared about the experience of ordinary people, but I really needed to understand what people with power were doing and what they were thinking. So I thought, okay, why don't I give myself a very different kind of writing assignment um, and focus this around the career of an influential person? So then the question became, who? Um, and I, I kind of had a checklist. It, I wanted somebody who had had a long career, um, had moved around, um, had lived through changes in urban policy regimes. Um, and I had taught a course at Harvard— uh, a number of years earlier, 
Um, we're actually, I should tell you, this is back to sort of 2005, six that I'm making this decision. So this is a long time ago. Um, I had taught a course at Harvard uh, called Building Boston in the 19th and 20th century. And in the course of teaching that, I had discovered this man named Ed Logue, who had been so influential in turning the city around during the 1960s. So I thought, well, maybe he's promising. Um, and I wrote to a number of my colleagues in urban history to ask whether they knew of anybody else writing about him, because you wouldn't want to invest a lot of time and find out someone else is writing a book. And then as I kind of Googled around, I discovered that he had left an enormous cache of papers at Yale, his alma mater. So the pieces came together. My colleagues told me that they didn't know anybody who was working on it, and I, it became clear that there were some major historians who had considered it but had never really implemented that interest. And then this cache of papers, you know, that's the, the meat and potatoes for an historian, appeared, and I thought this is a very promising direction. In Boston, we think of Ed Logue as the guy who established the Boston Redevelopment Authority, which is now the Boston Planning and Development Agency, as one of the most powerful forces in Massachusetts politics. But as you alluded to a moment ago, Ed Logue, in fact, was a national figure who did important work before he came to Boston and did important work after he left here. Can you, before we dive into his legacy in Boston, just offer a sketch of the arc of his career from before he was here to after he was here? Yes. So Ed Logue was born in Philadelphia. Um, so he was a city-born city guy, uh, cared a lot about cities, um, went to Yale. But a family uh, of modest means, Modest right? means, definitely. His father died when he was 12, and there were um, five siblings, and uh, he— was the oldest. He went to Yale on a full scholarship, um, and then he, he went into the service after Yale. It was World War II, and he came out and uh, went to Yale Law School on the GI Bill. But he never really stuck with law. He trained as a labor lawyer, and that's another an interesting piece of his career, um, his political orientation that we can talk about. But um, he uh, came— Back, uh, he went to Philadelphia, tried his hand at being a labor lawyer, um, decided that wasn't for him, and made the decision then quite early that politics at the local and the state level was where the action was. He first went and worked as labor secretary for Chester Bowles in his very short reign as governor of Connecticut. And then he went with Chester Bowles to India as his special assistant when Bowles became um, and the ambassador to the new nation of India. That's an interesting subject we could talk about, what he learned there. Came back to New Haven when he and his wife were about to have uh, their first child, and he came at a very opportune moment because a reform Democrat named Richard Lee was running what turned out to be a successful campaign to be mayor of New Haven. And uh, his major issue was to try to turn around this city that was in great decline. Ed Logue worked for him on the campaign, and then soon after, when Lee won, he asked him to join him um, as part of this big redevelopment effort. So he was in New Haven during the 50s. He then came to Boston, officially became the head of the BRA in 1961. He was here through most of the 60s. 
He then went on to New York State in 68 and um, stayed there for the rest of his career in two major jobs that we can talk about. And my recollection is he was, when he went to New York, uh, maybe even before then, a national figure, right? Major magazine covers, I can't remember if it was Life or Time or both of them, possibly. All of them. He was really considered Mr. Urban Renewal, um, Life magazine, Look magazine, all had features about him because cities were really struggling at this time. And we've got to remember that, um, that by the late 1940s, after the war, all the incentives were to solve the housing pro problem of, that this country faced after a decade of depression and then World War II with pushing people into the suburbs, incentivizing them to solve the housing problem by purchasing single-family homes in new suburbs that were being carved out of farms and forests. And cities were really being abandoned by people, by capital, by business. So uh, they were in crisis. And Logue became one of the people who really came up with strategies for um, rejuvenating, revitalizing uh, American cities. When Logue came to Boston, would it be fair to say that Boston was sort of a basket case? <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Yeah. It was almost bankrupt. Um, the tax rate was higher than anywhere else in the country. Business had basically disinvested because they had no trust in the Democratic machine run by uh, Curley, and who they felt was squeezing the business, downtown business class, um, and benefiting his constituency, which were the ethnic um, neighborhoods. So the Yankee Brahmin elite had basically um, boycotted the city. They tried to control it from the Massachusetts State House, and they took their money elsewhere. They invested everywhere else but in Boston. Yeah, I, I don't think most Bostonians, especially younger Bostonians, who look at the, the city's remarkable prosperity today, understand just, just what a basket case or worse Boston was. And in many people's minds, Ed Logue today is viewed as um, maybe not as bad as Robert Moses, the, the New York czar of public works, um, but as, you know, the, the destroyer of neighborhoods, of high-handed development. Um, I'll, I'll stop my statement there and ask you to respond. Well, you've hit right at the sort of core of the book, um, which really aims to take on what I think is an oversimplified and overgeneralized um, assumption about these efforts in the post-war period to redevelop cities. There were many bad things that happened in urban renewal, and particularly in the first stage in the 1950s, which is when Boston had its very bad period when the West End was basically demolished, um, and that was under Mayor Hines before Logue came to Boston. Also the demolition of the New York streets, right? New York streets was happening at the same time in the 1950s. And everywhere in the United States, that first phase led to the destruction of many low-income neighborhoods that were still 
functioning, but were poor. And what was happening is that cities were struggling with how to hold on to their middle-class residents, and they were seeing the federal government's money made available through the Housing Act of 1949, which, it should be pointed out, required demolition to get it. It did not allow for what happened later. By the, by the Housing Act of 1954, which was a revision on the 49 Act, it became possible to use that money for rehabilitation. But at first, you had to demolish. You had to take the cancer out of the city. Um, and so these cities thought that, well, if we can put up luxury middle-class housing, we'll be able to keep people. Well, it turned out that in very few cities that did that work. And instead, they, um, you know, destroyed many low-income neighborhoods, um, like the Oak Street neighborhood in New Haven and the West End here in Boston. But my point is that we shouldn't assume that People like Logue learned nothing from those mistakes. Um, I see, and the book really deals with this, the ways in which people learned from their mistakes. And the other point that I make in the book is that not only did urban redevelopers shift strategy um, based on the mistakes they made that they often acknowledge and shifts in federal government policy about what you could use that money for and how you would use it, but also in the course of these efforts by urban renewers, neighborhoods got shrewder at learning to negotiate with people like Logue and the BRA. And that happened all over the country. So that by the 1960s, when Logue is here, he's doing two kinds of urban renewal. One is downtown, the government center project being the signature one, and the other being efforts in, in Boston neighborhoods. And over that period of time that Logue is here, neighborhoods become um, much smarter about how to get more affordable housing that they want and how to pressure the BRA to do some of the things it wants. And um, it's that learning by communities that leads to the very successful efforts to stop the highway projects, for example, in the 1970s, like the Inner Belt, the Southwest Expressway. Um, so I see this as a much more dynamic process that we should not dismiss very simply with one condemning brush. Because in doing that, I feel that we, um, we really miss the extent to which federal investment in cities is a viable strategy. And today, I think we suffer from the federal government having basically opted out of that. And it becomes convenient to say, oh, urban renewal, what a disaster. Look what happens when the federal government gets involved. Um, you know, instead—and we will talk about this, I'm sure—with, um, during the 70s, and particularly with Ronald Reagan, the shift is to the private sector solving all affordable housing problems. And that leads to some very serious drawbacks. Just let me interject here. Uh, some of the listeners might not be aware of what the Southwest car of the was. Um, I live right up the street in Jamaica Plain from what it is. And there was a plan to put a big honking highway right through Roxbury and Jamaica Plain. And that's Tremont Street, 
the orange line. Um, Frank Sajan, who was governor, ultimately put an end to that. But it was a very famous local battle in Boston that um, really turned the tide against bad things being done in the development of the city. Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, that was a fight that uh, the late city councilor Chuck Turner played a huge role in, right? Chuck Turner, who later went to prison on corruption charges, some of which felt uh, some people thought that the sentence was overly harsh. But uh, that's one of the things that I think of as being a, a signature achievement of his. Am I right about that? You know, I, th I think Turner was a community activist at the time. Yeah. I don't think he was an office holder. Um, right, right. It, I think of him as, yeah, part of a, a group it, of it, activists it, it, who pushed I mean, back. for example, w when I moved to my street, Peter Polly Road in Jamaica Plain, people would say in whispers, you know, you're now a neighbor of Winky Flaherty. She was one of the leaders to stop. I, I mean, so I'm just on the cusp of people who remember that. And I, I just mention this because it's such an important part of Boston's, uh, the history of community activism. Um, but anyway, I, can, I'm taking it. Can I say you a few ahead, things about that? I mean, so there's many interesting dimensions of what you just mentioned. One is that um, the, the, the effort to stop the Southwest Expressway and the Interbelt was really very broad, and it brought together people from many neighborhoods um, and parts of—and not just within Boston, but because it was really going to be far-reaching, it was going to in involve suburbs as well. So it was a very broad Cambridge and so yeah. forth. So it was a very broad coalition that I think might never have happened if people hadn't actually been politicized um, in the course of the 1960s. Uh, another thing to be said is that someone like Logue did believe that one way to save the city was to build highways to bring suburbanites back in to make sure that the city survived as a site of uh, business and work. Um, and that was probably not one of his most, um, you know, intelligent decisions, uh, because highways go both directions, but they were trying to figure out how to keep jobs downtown. By the time he moved to Boston from New Haven, he had recognized that it was fairly it was a fairly losing proposition to keep residents in the city. Suburbanization was here to stay. But what they could do is keep the city viable as a site of employment. So um, that was another thing. The other point I want to make, though, is that here's where government um, rules and regulations stipulated by these this legislation mattered. In order to get the money to even put in mass transit, there was supposed to have been mass transit down the center of that highway. Um, they did have to follow this formula. And so what was so key about Sargent's decision is he then managed to get the government to change its policy and make that money available for mass transit alone. Oh, interesting. Huh. Uh, I want to get you to talk a lot more about Logue's legacy here in Boston. But before we do that, I got to ask Peter just one question, uh, backtracking a couple minutes. Peter, you asked Elizabeth if, you know, to characterize Boston in Logue's time, whether it was fair to call it a basket case. I'm just wondering, as someone who grew up in the city, if you at that time had a sense of, you know, conveyed through your parents or anyone else, okay, here's a city that is not firing on all cylinders and is not really working the way it should. Well, that's a really good question. You know, I was a little boy during some of this, but but 
Boston, I, I remember my dad, who um, grew up in Alston Brighton, used to work at the Slaughterhouse before, mm -hmm. when he was in high school during the Depression. Um, in, in the general feeling, I remember him saying, ah, you know, Boston's... It's nice where we live. I grew up in Dorchester in St. Gregory's Parish, but he said, boy, you want to see a withered place? It's California, because as uh, a Marine, he had spent time there before he shipped out to the Pacific during the Second World War. And I remember my, again, my dad talking about, yeah, you know, bowling alleys are open 24 hours a day. Um, you, you know, there was, I absorbed a sense as a, as a boy, that, you know, Boston was not hip and happening. But let me switch. I remember when the Prudential Center opened in the, 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 the Heinz Convention Center. This was a huge thing for people in Boston's neighborhoods. It, it, um, I remember being encouraged, you know, Go in. You're old enough to go in town on your own. Go in, look around, take a look at it. There was a tremendous sense that, at least in my family, that the Prudential Center um, was like an amazing turning point in Boston's history, that, you know, Boston was becoming like a big city again. So I, I think that answers your question. Elizabeth, tell us the story of the Prudential Center and the role Ed Logue played in making it happen. Well, Heinz, Mayor Heinz in the 50s had gotten this idea and had started working on trying to attract the Prudential Center to Boston to build its New England headquarters. But Prudential was very worried about committing because they had no confidence that they would not get squeezed by uh, Boston taxation in the way that had been the, 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 the past sort of experience for most co corporations. I mentioned there had been very little investment because it was very unreliable as a city that would make any commitments to those who invested there. I think I remember you writing in the book that uh, rumor had it that Curly just would sort of write in pencil the tax rate for a given parcel or a given corporation, right? He yeah, would just I mean, kind of do was, it ad hoc. Right, and yes, because and he sort of, this was part of the feeling that the Yankee Brahmin business elite had that uh, that they couldn't depend on the curly machine and that, you know, they, that he was corrupt and he was open to making deals, but that could change minute to minute. So the Prudential knew all that, though Hines was the mayor now. He had taken over for curly. Um and uh, they still didn't feel very confident uh, about that. So when Logue began as a consultant first in, uh, in the spring of 1960, he had been brought here by John Collins, who was elected as a new mayor and who had made turning the city around, renewing the city as his major effort, his, his, uh, his, where he was going to put his, his big priorities. Um, He'd hired Logue as a consultant. Logue came, uh, looked around. The instruction was to make a plan, which he did ridiculously quickly, uh, presented a draft in June. Um, by September, they were airing it publicly, knowing that there would be lots of public hearings because the federal money required that. But part of the negotiations that then took place in the fall of 1960 were around how to try—how to get the Prudential to commit. And so what basically 
Logue did, and this involves state, the state legislature, because the urban renewal legislation came from the state. Um, and Logue made certain demands uh, that he wanted, first of all, to, as the head of the BRA, which is what he was being invited to be, that he would have authority over planning and development. But another thing that was part of his demands was that the location of what would be the Prudential Center would be considered an urban renewal site, which would give um, the city and the state um, many more powers over it. And that would include assurances to the Prudential Center for tax relief. And they felt that that would be the way to really get the commitment. And am I right that to be an urban renewal site, it had to be categorized as blighted? Yes. And so basically the railroad yards, which is what the site had been, which was be, had to be uh, kind of condemned as a blighted site. Now, I do want to say something about the Prudential Center, and I really am interested to hear you say that how excited everybody was, because it was a big breakthrough. There had been very few buildings and investments made in the downtown area since the 1920s in Boston. It was really stagnant. But many people feared, and it actually came to be, I think, a problem, that in putting the Prudential Center where it was put, we— created a situation in Boston where we divided the downtown retail business and commerce between downtown crossing and the Prudential Back Bay section of the city. So that what happened, as many people who've lived here for a while know, is that the Back Bay area retail section became really the upscale area, which was 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 really difficult for downtown crossing. Um, now, today, retail is struggling everywhere, so yeah. it's a more complicated story. But one could argue that in a city of this size, to split it was problematic. Let me follow up on that, because um, there's, I don't know if, if what I'm about to say is urban legend or, or not, but... When I was a young reporter at the Boston Globe, I forget, maybe it was Ian Menzies who, who told me that, look, it's no mistake the Prudential Center is where it is. The South End was turning into a slum, again, for people knew the Boston, hard to imagine today, and that the Prudential Center was located there to, to, to serve as a breakwater, if you will, to keep the, the blight from moving huh. into the back bay. In your research, did, did you uncover anything like that? I did not come across that as intention. I think it became a consequence, so that the gentrification of the South End really followed the construction of the Prudential Center. So those streets that were closest were first to be gentrified. St. Patal, uh, for example. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I really have not seen that that was the intention. I think it was a very big plot of land that was available. Um, and I, I think that was probably more determinant. Um, and also remember that um, there was other—John uh, Hancock was not so far from there. No. So perhaps there was a thinking that the insurance district will be around Copley Square. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but I did not see that. I remember coming out to 
Massachusetts as a probably a 12 or 13 year old. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh. My parents had had worked at St. Anselm for a while. Uh, my dad was from the East Coast. They still had friends here. So we would come out every summer. And uh, I remember them meeting a friend and I was with them at the Prudential Center and thinking, this is so weird. There's the downtown over there, but then here's this other, you know, little nest of buildings that look like they're the day. Just I couldn't wrap my young brain around the fact that there seemed to be one and a half or two. How downtowns. interesting that you picked up on that. I remember a family trip to Boston. Um, in uh, I was in middle. Well, we called it junior high then. This would have been in the '60s. And driving around in a taxi around the downtown crossing area. And being absolutely shocked at how narrow and windy the streets were, how dark it all seemed, how kind of run down and dirty. I was coming from New York and uh, where, you know, we have streets and avenues and, you know, everything seemed the grid seemed to be the, the way I thought every city was. Um, so, you know, we—and this is, I think, an important conversation when we move to government center, because there's obviously a lot of criticism that you could make of um, opening things up, tearing down streets. Um, but we have to remember, first of all, the pressures that people were under to try to figure out how to save the city, but also not to romanticize um, what— the downtown was like at oh, that yeah. time. I, I, again, I remember as a little boy, you know, going into Quincy Market um, on, you know, like every other Saturday to do grocery shopping for things, you know, fruit and all, because things were so cheap there. And Quincy Market was crumbling. Um, you, you know, there was Durgan Park, now closed, but Durgan Park, was there. There was a uh, an all-night coffee shop, diner-type place, Mondo's, which any cab driver with a union pin could get free coffee, which drove, you know, which kept it hopping because late at night, if you needed something to eat, you'd go down there. But I also remember when Quincy Market was redeveloped, I remember very much sensing the life being sort of sucked out of Newbury Street at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny, I never really thought of this until we had this conversation. Boston, the retail pendulum has swung back and forth many times um, in different ways. But I guess I'm not asking a question. Well, I'm let's making talk an a, observation. You know, you're raising Quincy Market, which is actually um, a very re relevant topic because um, it— the, the fact it was in the in the kind of shape you described, it was falling apart. And uh, here's where there was some learning on the part of Logue and the BRA. There were a lot of pressures to tear down Quincy Market, given what you just described. But they had come to recognize that the city needed to have both its historic character as well as new building to mark its rejuvenation. And there was a—at first, the, the plan for government center, for example, called for tearing down uh, the Sears block. And right. uh, it was pressure to keep that that then brought Logue around to recognizing that they, what, they needed to be what in the book I call a kind of negotiated cityscape between the historic and the new. And 
deciding to save Quincy Market uh, and Faneuil Hall was really a major step. Uh, it didn't happen in Logue's years. He left um, in the summer of 1967 as head of the BRA, but it ultimately happened and opened for the bicentennial in 1976. But it's worth noting that um, in the efforts to make it into one of the very first festival marketplaces, which is what you are remembering, um, which had retail, restaurants, and so forth, and became a model for many other parts of the country, like uh, New York City and Baltimore, um, the banks in Boston, which had been so hesitant to invest in anything here, really balked. And it took money from the outside, New York banks, to basically back the development of Quincy Market um, to make it happen. So there has just been a, there has been a long, lingering sort of suspicion of what's possible in downtown Boston. When you talk about the redevelopment of Government Center— I want to make sure that listeners and that I understand what that entails. What was at Government Center before Logue changed it? And what, if anything, was lost that might give us pause as we look back on it to create what's there today? Well, it was Scully Square, which was basically the red light district. Um, but it should be pointed out that um, at by the time... Logue got here in the 60s. It had really passed its prime, if if a red light district can have a prime. <laughs> um, you know, it really had lost the kind of glamour and exoticness that had been there earlier. There used to be sort of vaudeville theaters right. or vaudeville-type theaters And that there, was right? gone. It was strip shows and... Uh, there were some businesses, but it was not, um, you know, where the action was. And um, I low came into Boston, having learned some lessons in New Haven, and having definitely picked up what a disaster the West End was, and how much opposition there was to that approach to urban. Uh, renewal. So he had vowed to plan with people and not to tear things down. But he didn't see Scully Square as uh, meaning the same thing. He really didn't see it as a very dynamic place that was contributing in many ways. And, and, and it should be said that to the extent there is any nostalgia for what was lost in tearing down Scully Square, it really came much later. At the time, there was not much opposition. Is that because it was primarily commercial rather than residential? I think because it was patronized mostly by tourists and maybe some Harvard students, um, you know, who were looking for adventure it had been during World War II. Maybe that was its prime, a place where sailors, you yeah. know, had a good time. But we're way past World War II now. So I, I don't think— I, I remember my aunts telling each other when they were teenage girls, no, no, you never go to Scully Square. He's not a nice boy if he wants to take you to Scully Square. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's true. You know, so I don't think they met very much opposition to doing that. It was not considered the same thing as the West End. And the argument—I should also say that, like Prudential Center, there had been some action under Hines to build a government center that would bring together city, county, state, and federal office buildings. But there wasn't any agreement. The federal government, for example, was 
more interested in the Copley Square area. It thought Scully Square. We're not going to invest in that. Um, so that was another thing that happened under Collins and Logue, that they managed to get government at all levels to commit to using not just the government dollars, but the physical presence of government to jumpstart uh, downtown investment and employment. So Government Center, which had that area had employed about 6,000 people before Government Center, once it was done, it was employing more like 20,000. And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Elizabeth Cohen for talking with me and Peter, and as always, to you for taking the time to listen. You'll hear the second half of our conversation with Cohen next week. I say every episode that we'd like to hear from you with comments, criticisms, and suggestions, and that is truer now than ever before. We are all in uncharted territory these days, and Peter and I, along with our producer, Zoe Matthews, could really use your thoughts on what the Scrum could provide going forward. So tweet at us if you can. I'm at Riley Adam, Peter's at Kansas, and Zoe is at Zoe S. Matthews, S as insensible Matthews with one T. Or, and this would be really great, use your phone to record a voice memo and then email it to us at scrum at wgbh.org. Anything you want to say is welcome, from how you think the state's political establishment is doing right now to how you're doing in this unusual and very scary time to what you want from us in the coming weeks. And obviously, whether you weigh in or don't, please be smart and take care of yourself. Peter, Zoe, and I get tons of help from a bunch of our colleagues at WGBH News. Gary Mott is first among equals. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.